And so this morning, uh, my prayer has been that, that we would grow deeper in our knowledge and understanding of what this is. We're nearing the end of our DNA series, a series in which we have taken time to define the framework of why we exist. Why are we here? Why do we do the things that we do as part of Sulphur Community Church? And how do we accomplish our God-given purpose? We've reminded you of our church mission statement. We exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. Already in this series, we've looked at that grand overall purpose. We exist to make much of God. That means that we exist to glorify Him, to to make Him known. We've discussed how we as a local body function together under the headship of Christ, each one of us serving as an essential member of the body to accomplish that purpose. We've discussed how we depend on one another, devoting ourselves to Christ and to ourselves and to the declaration of the gospel so that others might hear and believe. This morning, we will finish breaking down the mission statement, focusing our attention to the phrase, to the na- in the neighborhoods and to the nations, by reflecting Jesus Christ. As we look at the command of Jesus to his disciples regarding discipleship, and now that is a word that is a church word, right? Disciple. What does that mean? When we talk about discipleship, we're talking about making disciples. And plainly, a disciple, in the the context of where we're going this morning, is a follower. Literally, that's what that means. And in this case, we're talking about a follower of Jesus. We exist to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus. As As members of the church, we are on a mission I love the way Trent put this last week. Not for God, but with God. A mission of redemption and reconciliation. This mission was formed before the foundation of the world, but it wasn't until the first man, Adam, chose to disobey God that the plan began to be fulfilled. When Adam chose sin over obedience to God, he fell away from fellowship with God and was spiritually separated from him. Since that day in the Garden of Eden, mankind, including us, our response to that has been to run away from God, to hide ourselves, to hide our sin, to try to cover it all up. But since that day, God has been redeeming men and women back to himself, calling them back to himself. It was God who pursued Adam and Eve in the garden when he called out to them, where are you? It was God who first sacrificed part of his once perfect creation to cover up their sin, symbolized in in their naked shame. It has always been God displaying the glory of his gracious love who has taken it upon himself to pursue and restore men and women to righteousness. And if we follow this grand theme throughout Scripture, we see mankind persisting in trying to escape from God, to to fleeing from righteousness. So God displayed his glory in mercifully 
dividing men into nations. But he didn't leave them alone to suffer the consequences of their sin. Instead, he chose a small, powerless, insignificant nation to be a witness to the world. He chose the nation of Israel to bless so that they would bless all the families of the earth. And God revealed himself through them. He glorified himself. He made himself known. The God of Israel, Yahweh. When this nation of Israel, whom God had blessed, failed in their calling to make much of him, by rejecting the Messiah, rejecting the King Jesus Christ, again, God did not leave the world without hope. Instead, he called out another small, powerless, insignificant group that came to be known as the church. This is us. We have been chosen by God to be on mission with him to redeem the world. God has been calling, is now calling, and will continue to call sinful man back to himself in this work of redemption. He will fully restore all of creation, all for the purpose of glorifying himself of making much of himself. This plan of redemption is the supreme way through which God has chosen to glorify himself, to make himself known. And it is through participation in this redemptive plan that we best and most glorify God. As we, his called out church, are used to bring about restoration, are used to bring about redemption. Nothing glorifies God more than this gracious, merciful, forgiving, loving, just work of redemption that cost him the immeasurable price of his son, Jesus. And so for us, nothing glorifies God more than when we participate in that, when we make disciples. When we share the reality of Christ's work of salvation and are used to bring about restoration. So with that understanding, we look at a familiar section of Scripture this morning. While the words are familiar, my prayer has been that we go deeper, that we don't stay at the shallow surface, but that we really dive in deep and consider what does that look like? What does it look like to make disciples? In our study, we will identify five ways in which we will fulfill the call of God upon the church to make disciples, accomplishing that glory. We will see submitting. We will see going. We will see baptizing. We will see teaching. And we will see relying. First, let's look at submitting in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus and the disciples are on the mountain in Galilee, and he declares his authority before he goes into his command. He says, All authority. Now, for our students who participate in our student ministry on Wednesday nights, this is going to sound familiar to you because we talked about it this week. 
But I think it's important for all of us to understand something. That when we see the word all in Scripture, we should pay particular attention to the context. My mentor during my first years of pastoral ministry used to say, all does not mean all, all the time. All does not mean all, all the time. All is always defined by context. For example, each week, our loving, faithful hospitality team comes early, brews coffee, puts it out for us to drink. Now, for the sake of the illustration, let's say Adam's in the back. So let's say Adam drank the last cup, because there are times when that actually happens. We make all this coffee, and somehow all of it disappears. For whatever reason, there are, there are mornings when coffee is in higher demand than other mornings. And so someone drinks the last cup, let's say Adam. Let's say I come up behind Adam, and I go to get my cup. Nothing comes out. You're standing there watching this whole transaction unfold, and you tell me, what? Well, there's no more coffee because Adam drank all the coffee. Now, let's think about this. Did Adam actually drink all the coffee? No. Because what happened before Adam drank the coffee is somebody else drank a cup before him. And somebody drank a cup before that person. And someone drank a cup before that person. But we go ahead and say that, blame it on Adam. Adam drank all the coffee. He didn't actually drink it all. Secondly, did we as a church drink all the coffee, meaning that there is no more coffee in, the, in existence on the face of the earth? I hope not. <laughs> the world might stop spinning if that happens. All did not mean all within the context of that conversation. That being said, let's look in context here and determine whether or not Jesus means all in the absolute sense or is it limited by the context. What does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven in the spiritual realm, and all authority on earth in the physical realm. So I ask you, does all mean all? Absolutely. Jesus declares that all authority has been given to him. That means that it's been given to him by his Father. This means that he rules and reigns over all, which, of course, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, fits his primary purpose. We spent a long time in John, and we kept pointing you to the purpose of John's Gospel. He's presenting Jesus Christ as God. Matthew's purpose is to present Jesus as the King, the promised Messiah. That makes sense, right? Whenever he records this communication of all authority has been given to me. He is the King. He rules. This word for authority refers to the freedom and the right to speak and act as one desires. So what exactly does it mean that Jesus has all authority? 
This is important for us to understand before we move forward to the command and we move forward to the great promise, the lasting promise that Jesus gives us. When Jesus says he has all authority, he means all. All authority over Satan, demons, hell, angels, good and evil. He has all authority over the physical and natural universe and the laws that govern the natural order. He has all authority over things like stars and planets and galaxies. All authority over earthquakes, hurricanes, rain, wind, thunder, lightning. He has all authority over floods and fires. He has all authority over molecules, atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons. He has all authority over DNA and chromosomes. He has all authority over plants and animals, over viruses and disease. He has all authority over light and sound. He has all authority over man, including our physical bodies, our thoughts, our desires. He rules over all of that. He has all authority over nations and their governments. He has all authority over industries of business, over creativity, entertainment, media, over work. He has all authority over education, scientific discoveries. He has all authority over crime and violence. He has all authority over our families, our neighborhoods, our church. And every single soul and every single moment of time that has come or will ever come falls under the authority of Jesus. He has all authority. There is absolutely nothing in heaven or on earth that is outside the authority of Jesus Christ. He rules over all and he has the right and power given to him by the Father to do with it as he pleases. The implication here is that in order for us to fulfill the purpose of discipleship given to us by God, we must first submit to his authority. We must find ourselves submitting. Now, in order to do that, we need to first recognize and admit that that is hard for us to do. We don't like to submit to authority. We don't like someone telling us what to do or how to do it, infringing upon our freedom. You want an illustration of that? Look at a child. I'll never forget the picture that I had. It was so clear to me this day. We had been playing softball with some friends of ours when we were living in Baton Rouge. And one of our friends had a a little boy, Caden. And I remember when we were walking to the parking lot, we were walking down the sidewalk, the entrance into the park, going to our vehicles. And Caden, of course, being a little boy, wanted to take off running. He wanted to go out to the car and beat everybody. And I remember Caleb telling his son, Caden, don't go into the parking lot. Stop at the end of the sidewalk. And I'll never forget what happened. You want a picture of total depravity? Look at a child. Tell a child what to do and see if they obey. Because by nature, we rebel against authority. We rebel against that. We want to do what we want to do. And so I watched Caden run to the end of the sidewalk, stop, 
take a step into the parking lot, turn around, and look at his dad. Defiance. Rebelling against authority. That is what we do. We don't like authority. We don't like to submit. The flaw in our thinking when we rebel against the authority of Jesus is in our belief that that we have authority. That goes directly against what Jesus has just communicated because he says, all authority is mine. So what does it look like to submit? This is primarily an attitude, an attitude of submission. When we submit to the comprehensive, exhaustive, absolute authority of Jesus over everything, our attitude says, like Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. Whatever you desire and command, Lord, I'm at your service. This is essential for us to be a part of God's redemptive plan, to participate in that work. It's non-negotiable. In fact, it is our highest obligation. In order for us to be faithful disciple-makers, we must submit ourselves under the authority of our King, Jesus. We must, by the grace of God and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and not of ourselves, get to the point where our entire being responds to the calling of God with, whatever you ask of me, Lord, I am yours. Faithful makers of disciples by first submitting. And then that progresses into Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where we see going. Jesus continues and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The word that transition here is therefore. On the basis of the authority that Jesus possesses, he gives his command. I have all authority, authority. therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here on the grammatical structure of this phrase, because I'm I'm a nerd, and I I, I enjoy this kind of stuff, but what what you need to know is that the central command here is make disciples. Literally, it's actually disciple. Make disciples. That is the verb. And there, there's a thing in English for all of you who enjoy it. It's called participles. That's what the word go here is. Go, baptize, teach. Those are all participles that describe how to do the verb. Make disciples. How do we make disciples? By going. Literally, that actually says having gone. Make disciples. Now, that said, I want to address something because I've heard this taught before. And the, the grammatical structure was communicated clearly, but I think the application was misused. I've heard this communicated as, so the verb here is make disciples, so you're not commanded to go. There's not two commands here. It's not go and make disciples. It's make disciples while going. So as you go throughout your life, Make disciples. When it's communicated this way, I think it weakens the command of Christ for some of us in the church. Because what happens when we read that command at first is some of us get a little nervous. We read that and we get a little anxious. 
Our heart starts beating rapidly. Our palms start sweating because what it seems here is that we are called to go, and that's scary. It seems like Jesus is asking us to give up our comfortable lives. But then when this grammatical structure is clearly and accurately communicated, some hear that and say, oh, thank you, God. See, I thought you were actually going to tell me to go and seek and save the lost like your son Jesus has commanded us to do. I'm obviously being sarcastic. I'm off the hook, though. I I thought this was a command for me to go out into the mission field do the work of participating in this act of redemption. I'm so relieved to know that it is just a command for me to to be different and hope that people ask me why I'm different or to just pay attention to those who I come across in my everyday life here in Sulphur, Louisiana and be intentional about the conversations I have with them so that I make disciples. That's not a proper interpretation. What is interesting here is that the phrase translated for go is having gone. What's implied there is that it was understood that the disciples would go. Having gone. As you go, make disciples. Additionally, Jesus tells his 11 followers, by the way, likely... A lot of scholars think the other 500 that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, that they were also here on this mountainside when it says Jesus appeared first, first, and then a group of 500 or more. It's, it's assumed. A lot of scholars think that this is where that happened. Jesus tells them that they should pursue making disciples of all nations. How can that possibly happen if someone doesn't give up the comfort and the familiarity of their, their lives and leave and go? to the nations. How does that happen? This command is parallel to the description we see in Acts 1.8, another very familiar verse in the Bible. Jesus speaking to the disciples says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You see the progression there. It's, it's moving. It's going. The mentality of the church should not be to wait for the world to come to us, but to go. Jesus modeled this mentality for us when he came to earth to do what was essential to atone for our sins. Thank God Je- that Jesus didn't wait for people to come to him. Because what do we know about natural man? We look all the way back to the beginning when we see Adam and Eve running away from God, trying to hide from God. Paul writes about it in Romans 3. He says, no one seeks God. God pursued us by sending his son, not hoping that we would come to him. He took action. And then Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are a sent people. Which means we must go. Thank God the disciples didn't think, he didn't really mean we had to go somewhere to do this. We can just live our lives as fishermen and share the gospel with our fishermen buddies. 
And that's how we accomplish this purpose. I'm glad they didn't think, I know he said to go, but it doesn't really mean I have to go. Because my mission field is, is in my home, it's, it's my family, it's my children. Yes, your children need to hear and see the gospel, but if all they ever see of the gospel is your love for them, you're not communicating the whole story. They're missing out. Because the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. So we must go. Now hear me out. I'm not standing up here telling you this morning that you're wrong for being here instead of being in some remote village in sub-Saharan Africa. I'm not telling you you're wrong for being very intentional about discipleship within your home and in your families because that is a blessing and an obligation that you've been given. But I will ask a question for all of us to individually consider. It's something that I've been asking myself over the past couple of weeks as I've been preparing. Ask yourself this, what am I doing to accomplish the mission of making disciples of all nations? What am I doing? Jesus said, therefore, on the basis of my authority, make disciples. How? By submitting to the authority of Jesus and also by going. Well, where are we to go? The better question is to whom should we go? See, that word translated nations is a word that actually means a group of people joined by practicing similar customs or sharing common culture. Jesus is not here describing geographical locations with political borders. He's describing groups of people who share customs and culture and traditions. Now, when Jesus originally said this to the disciples, they would have understood that to mean we must go to the Gentiles. All nations. All peoples. And the thing is, the inclusion of all nations in God's redemptive plan was there from the beginning. While Israel was God's chosen people, he chose them so that they would reach all nations for himself. We see that in the record of this plan, going back to Genesis chapter 12. Look there with me. Hold your place and turn back to Genesis chapter 12. This is where God calls Abram. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go, sound familiar? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that, there's a purpose, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of Israel will be blessed. It's not what that says. What does it say? All the families of the earth. This was not just supposed to stay within Israel. Israel was a witness to the world. 
And like I said earlier, when they failed, then God called another chosen group, the church. And here Jesus is giving that command, go and make disciples of all nations. Every people group. This has always been part of God's God's plan. He will be glorified. He will be made known among all people of the earth. So how do we make disciples? We go to groups of people who have not heard the gospel truth and we declare the good news of Jesus to them. Common application here is you're either going or you're sending. And that's true. That doesn't mean that when we leave here today, necessarily, if that happens, praise God, he's done a miraculous work where every single individual in here feels led to go somewhere. Hey, we'll shut down shop because that's what God wants us to do. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that we all have to go. But we should all be playing a part in this mission. What, what are we doing? Are we going? Are we called to go? Look, our pastors, we, we pray about this. We talk about this. Where are we going to plant the next church? Where is the next group of people that need to hear and see the gospel? Where are we going to go? And if you're not the going, are you participating in the sending? That's why we as a church, I'm going to refrain from using names from now on because I don't know what could happen if someone hears the names on the internet. But there are people that we support that are going, who are devoting their lives to reaching people who have never heard the gospel. So we're joining in that effort. We are sending them. We're part of the mission. We're, we're doing it. Some of us do that as individuals. But we are called to go. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go outside the country. It does mean you have to go outside of your comfort. What's interesting here is in our area, the nations, they're coming to us more and more. Sometimes going is literally just walking across the street. It could be walking across the street to your neighbor who has never heard accurately the declaration of the gospel, who has never seen the effect of the gospel. Are we submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus by making disciples? We make disciples by submitting, by going, and then also by baptizing. In Matthew chapter 28, the second half of verse 19, Jesus continues and says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To baptize literally means to immerse in water. In the context of the hearers of Jesus' words, they would have identified baptism as a symbol of spiritual cleansing. You think back to the example of when John the Baptist was baptizing. This was repenting. He was calling people to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he would baptize as a symbol of this repentance. After it was instituted by Jesus, it became an outward expression of identification with Christ through faith. Scripture is clear that man is saved by God's grace alone, expressed in the God-given gift of faith in Christ alone. 
So we shouldn't get confused with thinking that there is something about baptism in and of itself that saves. We see the words of Jesus telling the eleven that they must make disciples by baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus told the eleven they must make disciples by baptizing people of all nations, they would have associated that aspect with the redemption of souls from every nation. In this context, baptism is synonymous with the salvific work of Christ and man's belief in that work on their behalf. This too would have been understood when Jesus talked about baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because it is through Christ alone, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, believing in that, in His name, that salvation is found. So while submitting and going is important, we must also commit to focusing on this aspect, baptism. Salvation through the hearing of the word. We are not just going to people who have never heard the gospel to focus on social justice issues, although we should do that. We're not going to people to focus on community development, although we should do that. The ultimate aim of our mission is to introduce them to the saving good news of Jesus Christ so that they will believe and then follow in believers' baptism as a symbol of their identification with Christ. This is essential. There is no other way for them to be redeemed unless we preach the good news. We have to bring the message with us when we go. Paul wrote of this in Romans chapter 10 section of scripture that we quote often here as a, a church who is missional, who, as a church who desires to see God made much of in our neighborhoods and to the nations. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13, Paul wrote, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is an absolutely glorious truth. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he continues, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You hear that, that language there, the feet. How beautiful are the feet. See, implied there is that they've gone. Their feet are dirty because they're walking the dusty road. How beautiful are those feet who go, but not just go, they preach the good news. So yes, go and feed the hungry. Go and stand beside the broken. Go and fight for social justice, but don't forget what the goal is. Redemption only comes through the hearing and believing the Word of God. Side note, if you've believed in the gospel, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation and have not followed that belief, that trust with baptism, I would encourage you to do so. 
And I don't care how long you've been a member of Sulphur Community Church. I don't care how long you've been a member of a church. If you haven't followed that moment, that season, that point where you've trusted and said, Jesus, I'm committed to following you no matter what the cost. If you haven't followed that in baptism yet, I plead with you to do so. That is a testimony to the church of the powerful work of God because you are a miracle. Understand that. The fact that you have responded in faith to the calling of God is a miracle. And we as the church, we need to see that. It's encouraging to us. But not only that, it is implied. You should be obedient. This was something that Jesus himself instituted. And we see this throughout all of Scripture. What happens is people hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, and then they are baptized as a symbol of what the reality of what has taken shape in our lives. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in new life. It's a declaration of the gospel that we get to see and participate in. So I would encourage you to do that. Discipleship does not stop at baptism, though. It does not stop at the communication of the gospel and the believing of the gospel. The process of glorifying God through discipleship begins with submission. It goes with us as we go, moves to baptism, and then teaching. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, the first part of 20, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The mission of the church and discipleship is not just conversion, but also teaching. We are called to a life of obedience. And so we must know what God requires us to obey. Teaching is essential. This came up in a discussion I had this morning, talking about one salvation, what comes next? What, is, what comes after that? Teaching. Jesus talked about the importance of knowing and obeying the word of God. We're talking about obedience here. In John chapter 14, verses 23 through 26, Jesus answered him, this is Judas, not Judas Iscariot. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We spent a lot of time here when we were going through John's Gospel talking about the teaching aspect. This is part of discipleship. We must know the word. And if anyone loves Jesus, they will keep his word. And we see here that the, the, the ultimate teacher is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit teaches us. Progressive obedience should follow the conversion of man. As we learn more of what the righteousness of Christ entails... And we pursue to live out that righteousness in our lives. And when we're convicted by our teacher, the Holy Spirit, when we fail to do so, and we continue to go through that process, striving for righteousness, failing at, at righteousness, convicted by the Holy Spirit, taught, 
That process is sanctification. We grow. It transforms us to become more like Christ so that we more accurately reflect Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods and to the nations. This is a lifelong pursuit of spiritual maturity. And each one of us spur one another on for that. So what does teaching to obey look like? The obvious answer, we tell one another what spiritual maturity and obedience is. We study scripture together and we declare what it has to say and discuss the application of those truths to our lives. But it goes beyond the discussion. It's not just talking about it. That's where it starts, and it starts with studying Scripture, talking about it, but then it moves to obedience, modeling it for one another. It becomes visible. And so in order for it to be visible, we have to spend time with one another. You see how this kind of overlaps with what Trent was talking about last week with community? We spend time with one another, and in that time, discipleship happens as we we strive together. And we see, we don't only hear it, but we also see it. We do things together. We, we eat together. We go on trips together. We play games together. We experience joy together. We experience sorrow together. And when we do those things, we strive to faithfully display obedience to the word of God. And this is what happens. Let me use my group, for example. When I see Dustin and Taylor striving to live out an obedient life to God, to what his word says, they're teaching me. We talk about it. And then when I see them walking through it, I'm being taught. And it encourages me to do the same. We see this model of discipleship all throughout Scripture. Older women, so you use that however you want to define it, and I'm not going there yet. (laughs) But older women, you are to train our younger women. You are to disciple. That means you do things with them. That doesn't mean that you just teach them verbally, but that you live out with them. That you model for them what an obedient lifestyle looks like. And you encourage them to do the same. Paul trained Timothy to do that. Paul trained Timothy so that he would train others. He taught him, but then they lived together. They did things together. They journeyed together. Fathers and mothers... You're to train your children. You're to disciple your children. You're intentional about what you do with your children. And you take those moments when you can teach them verbally and physically. Jesus spent three years in intimate relationship with his disciples. He communicated the gospel truth to them so that they would believe, and then he trained them to live obedient lives. And he was with them. So discipleship is a lifestyle. 
It is a defining lifestyle of the church as we submit to the authority of Christ in going, baptizing, teaching, and lastly, relying. The very end, we see this great lasting promise from Jesus. He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, as we've been discussing what discipleship looks like, you may have begun to feel like the disciples likely felt. Jesus has just told them that they are to go to all people, including the Gentiles, to all people, even those who will hate them and will kill them. And they are to go and bring this gospel truth that violently confronts every single individual and every single culture. They are to bring up the reality of sin. They are to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ and the essential belief that has to happen. You have to trust in this. And then, if they were foolish enough to believe that truth, right? Because the gospel is foolishness to man. If they were foolish enough to believe that, then they are to teach these people everything that Jesus has commanded them. This lifestyle is difficult. Church, if you're committed to discipleship, it is not easy. It can be painful. It can be scary. It is impossible. Hear me. Impossible. If you try to do this with your own ability and out of your own power. Here, Jesus delivers hope yet again. He says, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. I will always be with you, the one who has all authority. That's why it's important for us to understand that. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth promises that he will be with us as we devote our lives to making disciples. He has given us his power in the sending of his Holy Spirit. This is impossible in our own power, but we go, we baptize, we teach, all the while relying not on ourselves, but on his power. When we go, we go in his power. When we preach the gospel, we extend the call to repent and draw near to Christ, but it is his power in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that brings new life. When we teach, it is the sanctifying power of Christ through his spirit that brings about maturity. We plant, we water, but the power of God brings the growth. So we rely. This is an important aspect of discipleship. In conclusion, church, this is our, this is our purpose. We exist to make much of God, to glorify Him. In our neighborhoods and to the nations, not defined by geographical locations, political borders, but to all groups of people, regardless of race, regardless of language, regardless of socioeconomic status, all people. And we do that by reflecting Jesus Christ as we disciple and as we grow in discipleship.
This is the only reason we as the church are still here on earth. This is our supreme mission. If our supreme mission, our primary purpose was community or fellowship, we would be in heaven. We would not be here on earth where sin destroys, it brings disunity. We would be in perfect harmony and fellowship with our king right now and one another. If our supreme purpose was learning his word, we would be in heaven where sin does not hinder us from perfectly understanding. We've been left here because we've been given the task of making disciples. This is our primary purpose. Those things, learning the word, spending time together, community, they're not the primary purpose. They're the means through which we accomplish that great task that we've been given. So let us not lose sight of what is most important, Sulphur Community Church. Sometimes we can get caught up in systems and procedures and processes and we lose sight of what the overall goal is that we've been given. We are here to make disciples. Whatever the cost, whatever way that God has designed for us to do that, this is how we do it. We submit to his authority first. We go whether it's across the street or to another place across the world, we go. And when we go, we bring the gospel. We bring the message of reconciliation and restoration. We bring this message of hopelessness, pointing out the reality of sin, that we have been separated by God, but that God has made the way, not a way, the way, by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, to atone for our sins. We who were once hopeless now have a hope. Believe that. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Trust in Jesus Christ. We bring that message with us. And then when people believe, we teach them. We spend time with them. We teach them from Scripture. We, we study it together and then we live it out faithfully in obedience. And as we go about this whole process... We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We rely on the authority of Jesus Christ. Because God is working all things out for his glory. We're on a mission. Not for God, but with God. We get to be a part of this. Let's not lose sight on the goal. Let us devote ourselves to fulfilling this mission. Let's go and make disciples.